Traditionally, we view missions as something we only do in foreign lands. But today's churches have a new challenge. Our neighborhoods are filled with diverse cultures of Americans in desperate need for the gospel of Jesus and life in His church. Most significantly, they need a gospel and a church that are faithful both to the scriptures and the cultural context of America. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be there for our, our little talk today. And uh, we're going to read a few verses, starting at verse 22, going all the way through verse 34. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. There's a stack of Bibles on the back table, and uh, you, are willing, uh, you are more than welcome to actually have that as, uh, as your own if you don't have a Bible. Um, we're going to read out loud together. And uh, when you're ready, say, we got it. All right. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word today. We pray that you would give us ears uh, to hear what you're saying and eyes to see something in this passage of Scripture that for those who have read it and, uh, and really have digested it, God, give us something new in it today. Uh, we thank you that we are among Many churches who are gathering right in this moment around Alexandria and specifically in Kingstown who are singing songs to Jesus and worshiping Jesus, opening the scriptures and talking about the good news of Jesus. And we pray that, Lord, in all of our churches, Lord, that you would meet with us, that your Holy Spirit would um, encourage us, that we would be exhorted and challenged by your word, that the men of God standing in pulpits would be great teachers today, being faithful to the scriptures. More importantly, Lord, God, that you would change us, that we would not walk out of these places of worship as your churches gathered without being changed. And we pray that in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right. So one of the unique challenges of the age that we live in is that all of us are either living in the past or the future. And that's just the absolute truth. And we do that in detriment to living in the present. Think about this. I mean, many of us have this thing that's pulling us to life as we once knew it. We think about the good old days, how wherever we lived is so much better than where we're living right now, of how some of the things that we used to do, how life might have been more simple than it is in the complexity of today's time. We think about all kinds of things, the cost of goods then versus now. I mean, think about gas. I mean, this is a secular thing, but think about cigarettes. I don't even know what I'm thinking about that. My, my mom used to send me to the store to buy her 
um, a pack of cigarettes and they were 15 cents back when I was a young man in the 70s. And thank God cigarettes are like three dollars a pack. <laughs> now, you know, that bad habit that we got. It's not a sin, but it is, a, it is bad for your health. I don't even know where I went there. Um, but then there are those of you that don't look too much to the past. I mean, your mind is always on the future. All you can think about is what's coming up next. And even as I say that, I'm reminded of this week, of course, the new iPhone came out, the iPhone 5, 5S and 5C. And I mean, did you look on Facebook? Or you might have even been one of those fools that actually went to the Apple store and stood in line. I shouldn't have called you a fool, but it, it came out so effortlessly that, you know, that I mean, I got to have the newest, the bestest. The, I got to have it in my hand and using it. And um, some of my friends stayed up to midnight on whatever day the, the new iOS came out, just ready to download that new um, operating operating system for the new uh, for the, you know for their old phone. And that really is the way that innovate innovators, those people who like innovation are. They despise the old ways of thinking and doing. Um, they feel like that if if they aren't pressing towards the future and whatever's next, then they really are being constrained by by life. They're becoming irrelevant in the world if they aren't pressing towards the future. Um, here's the, the, the deal behind this. Churches are no different because churches are people. Uh, churches either will tend to. Uh, be very nostalgic and traditional and be stuck there or they might press toward the future. And churches like people do this to the detriment of paying attention to what's going on right in in the present, right in front of their faces. When I think of, of this idea, especially of the idea of looking to the past, I think of the nation of Israel. Um, the Old Testament story tells us that the Israelites were in slavery more than 400 years. I mean, a brutal slavery in Egypt. God sent them a deliverer. Through Moses, he brought them by God's strong hand out of slavery and they were only days in the desert before they started complaining. Well, we don't like this manna that you've given us. We need some water. We're tired of eating manna. We want some meat to eat. I mean, they were complaining about everything. And uh, of course, you know, God satisfies them by, by giving them water and giving them the things that they needed. But even though God was taking care of their needs, all they could think about was the things they had in Egypt. Well, we had bread in Egypt. We had vegetables in Egypt. We didn't run out of water in Egypt. Oh, but they forget about the slavery that they endured. And we read these stories and we think about, well, I mean, isn't it foolish for them to um, to crave what they had before so much that they would be willing to endure slavery to get that? But um, I would suggest to you that if you are if you lean towards traditionalism and nostalgia, I mean, it, we're always leaning back. We're always pulling and thinking of how good those days were. Now, the other danger is innovation. There are many churches that are frustrated with the traditionalism and I would call it the, the conservative constraints of the church as they knew it. And they they tend to be revel, uh, relevant. In fact, I would tell you that some churches try to be so relevant that they lose their their heavenly good because the gospel requires that we uh, we be countercultural in many ways to the culture around us. The gospel requires that we be a distinct people. And so sometimes innovation hurts us more than helps us. Again, this is akin to the nation of Israel um, as they were both in the wilderness, but also coming into the promised land, they found themselves being neighbors to many different nationalities of people. In fact, they got so friendly in their being a neighbor that they would uh, succumb to the pagan worship of of their neighbors, worshiping these false gods. So relevant that they lost the witness that they should have had as the people of God. I mean, is there a middle ground? Is there a middle ground between the nostalgia and the traditionalism of who the church is, who it's been in history and the innovation that's required to keep up with the current culture and what's going on? in it? I would tell you that there is. I'm a stickler for tradition. I love um, the parts of our church and our churches and our church history that reminds us of where we've come and all that the church is. And I think as a church and as a people, we have to be true to the tradition. We must pay attention to um, 
those people and those churches that have come before us and paved the way. At the same time, um, we also have to look and see the culture that God has put us in and the things that are happening in the culture. We want to be a people and a church that doesn't pay so much attention to traditionalism that we get stuck in it. But we also don't want to be so relevant that we lose our witness in the world. We're in a series, a four week series called Remission. If you look up uh, re colon re colon in the dictionary, then it simply means about of concerning. And so we are looking in four weeks uh, about topics concerning the church, the church and her mission. Uh, the way that I pose it is uh, not redefining the mission of the church. The, ch- the mission of the church is in concrete in, in Jesus words to us in the great commandment and the great commission. Love the Lord your God, your God with all of your heart, mind and soul. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. And in uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he says to, to make disciples. We can't change that. We don't want to change that. But as we talked last week about imitating Jesus, uh, these things are true. God has placed us in this era where we live and he's giving us the timeless message of the gospel. And he, in, he intends for us, his church, to not change the gospel, but to use that message to fit into the culture that he's set us in, that we might help people find God. And that is just the truth. So next week, or last week, we talked about imitating Jesus, that the the starting point of incarnating the gospel uh, as Jesus with skin on is really to to do what Jesus did, to to incarnate him, to to be uh, like he was on the earth. Next week, we're going to look at evangelism. A remission evangelism. And I won't spoil it by telling you what it is. Um, the week after that, we're going to look at uh, loving your neighbor. OK, who is your neighbor and then how do we actually love him? Today, we're going to talk about the gospel and the culture. And we're going to do that from Acts chapter 17. Before I get there, though, uh, you know, remission is about speaking the language of our culture that we're in. Um, we want to express the truth of the gospel in a language to the culture of the people that God has really called us to evangelize. And I would tell you that he's called us to evangelize, to to share the mission and the message of Jesus with those that he's placed us around where we live, where we work, who your friends are, where you recreate in every area of, of your life. Even those people that you um, may happen to come across in the the the, the simple moments of your day. As I said before, while the content of the gospel remains unchanged and truthful, the presentation of the gospel has to be continually changing because our times are different. We live in a different world today than many of our forefathers lived in days gone by. Have you ever noticed um, that God actually does that for us in the pages of the Bible? Have you ever recognized um, what God is doing when you're reading the Gospels, just for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, God does a neat thing just in how he writes scripture for us, because uh, just in looking at the Gospels, God really is. He, I mean, he inspired the writing of, of four Gospels, each designed to present the gospel to different cultures. I don't want to get too academic on you, but I do want to present a chart to you. If you can show that chart. Um, there's a lot of information on here and I'm going to summarize uh, most of it for you. But I uh, wanted to succinctly show you both the similarities and the distinctiveness of the Gospels that uh, God gives us in the Bible as a segue into this idea of, of how he already um, contextualizes the gospel uh, that we read so that we can contextualize it in the culture that we are. The gospel of Matthew was, uh, you know, Matthew was a, a despised tax collector when Jesus called him. He was sitting at a tax booth and Jesus looked at him and said, you know, come follow me. And so uh, Matthew dropped all of the, all that he was doing. I think he probably even left the money on the table, as, as strange as that can sound. And he followed Jesus. You know, Matthew was a Jew. And in large part, because Matthew was a Jew, he wrote his gospel to, to those who were fellow Jews to um, to exhort them, to encourage them, to challenge them that Jesus was the actual Messiah that was predicted, that was promised, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
And so we see uh, in Matthew genealogies from Abraham to David, uh, Matthew writes from perspective that Jesus is a rabbi that's coming, uh, you know, as a as a representative of God to point the way to him. And he gives a lot of quotes from the Old Testament. Mark was the youngest gospel writer. Uh, Mark is the shortest gospel. And it's just an action packed kind of, uh, uh, you know, showing Jesus in 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 his life as a servant. Um, there's a lot of miracles presented in the book of Mark. Mark wrote from Rome. He was a Roman and we can say that he was writing to the people of Rome. But uh, I don't know if you know this. Mark's account in his gospel is actually uh, an account of the Apostle Peter. OK, so Mark is really telling all that Peter experienced in his life as an apostle. And so because it was it was it's Peter's experience that he's talking about, although he was writing to a people in Rome, he was really writing it for the church at large. Luke, um, if you start reading the book of Luke, it doesn't even tell us who the author is. But because of church history, we know that Luke was uh, a doctor. He was affluent. And Luke was uh, in the book of Acts. We find out that Luke was actually uh, a participant in several of Paul, the Apostle Paul's journeys as he was um, advancing God's kingdom and, and, and spreading the gospel. Um, Luke wrote the gospel so that readers would understand um, that the gospel is for everyone. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. And when you read Luke, uh, the neat thing is he points out those things that make Jesus look human. In fact, I would say that it, the, the summary of the book of Luke is Jesus, the man who is God. That really is the, the perspective uh, that Luke is trying to give us to the culture that he was trying to reach. And lastly, we have um, John. John was the apostle that that Jesus loved. Um, he was in Jesus inner circle. He was also a Jew. John, um, interestingly enough, wrote to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles living in the, the Greco Roman world. He was writing to Greeks. Um, John was um, an interesting fellow um, and he was a Palestinian Jew. And so in his book, he is really trying to translate things that Jews believe uh, the geography of Palestine, and he was trying to help other people outside of Judaism understand who Jesus was in this context. And so if you can, you know, with that little bit of an introduction and this, this sort of chart here, if you can see, these really are four different presentations of who Jesus is without changing the message. I mean, the gospel still is that God, that Jesus is God that he existed in eternity, that he became flesh, he, he became a man, that he lived a perfect life so that we wouldn't have to, that he died on the cross by God's plan um, to, to save us. Okay, And all the Gospels present that you can have faith in Jesus by trusting in him. But they do it from a different a different angle because all of them are trying to reach a different type of people. You know, I liken this to watching the news at night. You guys, for those of you that are, you know, are news addicts, I don't watch a whole bunch of TV, but come six, six o'clock, six thirty, um, I'm going to turn the news on just to catch up and, and find out what's going on. And if you, uh, you know, we have the, the major network news, uh, NBC, CBS, ABC, some would throw in Fox News in there. And then way off on the side, you got CNN. And so. The, the major network news, NBC, CBS, ABC, I mean, you're looking at the same thing. They're, they're all telling the same stories about what happened today, whether it's uh, some international thing um, or what happened right here in America. They might have a different reporter talking about it. They might give it a different spin, a little bit, of, uh, a little bit less or more detail. But for the most part, it's all the same. But then you got CNN and CNN, first of all, is 24 hour news and they're coming from all over the place. And really, this is this is the uh, the similarity that we have in the Gospels. You got Matthew, Mark and and Luke that really are using similar stories and conveying them in different ways, but um, pretty much um, in the same way. And then you got John, um, who's still talking about Jesus, but he does it in an around about way. Um, if statistics are true, the culture that surrounds us is filled with people in our culture that has no idea of who of what the church is and what we do. OK, they're just dumbfounded. They know about church. They might even talk about God in either good or bad ways, but they have no idea of who we are, what we do or even what our our message is. And um, the question for us today, as we look at gospel and culture, is how do we help people find God that don't know him? 
I mean, how do we do it? When we lived in in North Carolina, in Fayetteville, um, we moved over a year ago to, to Northern Virginia. We lived in a neighborhood that was really right in the center of, of town. And it was a neighborhood called Wood Glen. And by the, the name of our neighborhood, it was, it was wooded. I, you know, I called it a forest right in the middle of the city. And whenever I was trying to give someone directions to get to our home, I would tell them the street name. I would tell them the neighborhood and I would give them a few reference points. But I mean, they was like, where do you live? Because they're recognizing, well, you live right in the middle of the city. Right. But that doesn't sound like a place that that I know. And so I would give them, you know, I, then I would resort to reference points, to signposts. What is a signpost? A signpost is like a billboard that you can hold up or, you know, a big building that's not going to move and say, all right, so I, I live by that building right there. And so the major thoroughfare right behind my house was a, a road called Skybo. You know, it was, everybody was on Skybo because of the, the stores that were there. And it was, the, it was the thing that connected Fort Bragg, the Army Post, to the rest of the world that lived outside of that. That post. And so, all right, so you know where Skybo is? All right, yeah, I know where that is. You know where Lowe's on Skybo is? Yeah, yeah, I know where that is. All right, across the street from Lowe's, there's a bookstore. All right, you know where that, you know, I know where that bookstore is? All right, behind that bookstore is a neighborhood, just a bunch of trees and neighborhood. I, yeah, I know where that is. All right, so one more thing. There's a Methodist church in that, you know, in that area behind that bookstore. You know what? I know where you live. And so then I would give them, I said, so you go to the Methodist church, you, you go down to the stop sign, you go into the neighborhood, you turn left. I live at, you know, 10 o'clock at the cul-de-sac. So that really is the, the signpost that I would give people to get to my house. And in very much, in a very similar way, this really is what we have to do to help people in a culture, a pluralistic culture, where everyone has different worldviews, understand a God that they don't know at all. I mean, you just can't walk up to people in our day and say, Jesus died for your sins and expect that to mean anything to them. They're going to look at you and say, I've heard that before, but what does it mean? So I, you know, I would commend to you, there are signposts of the gospel in our culture that we can give to help people navigate from where they are to eventually figuring out who Jesus is and this God that died for them on the cross. These aren't original to me, but I want to quickly give you seven signposts. These are billboards that you can hang up as you're contextualizing the gospel in the ways that you live and work and play that might help people inch their way toward the God of the universe. The first one is that the gospel uh, connects uh, to this life. The gospel connects to this life. You know what? We won't need the gospel in heaven. We won't because if you don't get it here, you won't be there. OK, the gospel rem- reminds us that this is how we're reconciled to God by Jesus, life and death and us trusting uh, that he has died for for our sins. You know, it used to be in the old church that we would sing songs like I'll fly away when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing it will be. We sang those songs every Sunday because we were so content on dying, getting to heaven. But guess what? I mean, the interesting dynamic, the interesting statistic is we're living long lives now. Seriously, people are living a long time. And so to encourage someone that you're going to die and go to heaven is not encouragement at all. I'm not ready to die. I want to live a long life. People are like doing, you know, tummy tucks and face, you know, Botox and going to hot water springs just to live long life. They don't want to die. And so how can we how can we encourage them by a gospel that says you're going to die and go to heaven? Well, the gospel is for this. There are benefits of the gospel of serving Jesus right here in the present day that we can um, expose to people and, you know, encourage them that the gospel is is for life today. The second would be the gospel infuses daily activities with meaning. You know, there are many people that we know that that eat and live and play and work and love and hate. And they don't they have absolutely no idea of why they do any of those things. They're just they're going through life. They're going through the motions and they don't even know why. There are a seemingly number of even successful people that they amass all this stuff and they're able to do anything they want with the resources. But. They're, I mean, they are living a life that's in vain because they don't know why they have no purpose. They don't know why they're here. And so with this signpost, we can hold up a sign that says the gospel infuses meaning into your life, that there's things to live for that are beyond your 
your means, what you earn, the money you make and what you are able to do just because you're you're successful. The gospel reveals Jesus as Lord of all of life that we can wake up in the morning. And whether we are a babysitter or a stay at home parent or or whether I'm uh, I'm the leader of the free world that I get up and I have a, a, a purpose to life because I'm serving not for serving sake. I'm serving. Um, I'm serving for Jesus sake. Because my life is a is a sacrifice. My whole life is worship. The third signpost would be this. The gospel names sins and points the way to forgiveness. The gospel is that God is infinitely holy and glorious and I am infinitely wicked and sinful, more sinful and whole and wicked than, than I could believe. But that God serves justice for the penalty of my sin by by meeting it on his son. And as I simply trust in Jesus, um, God satisfies his wrath and he forgives me. The fourth signpost is this. The gospel transforms life. You know, there's a lot of people that are just trying to cope. They're just trying to manage the life that they've been given. They're trying to manage really the, the tough parts of life, the, the, the places where where they sin. And so the gospel is really about the, the grace of God. What is grace is how God gives us what we don't deserve. God gives us grace. He gives us grace to save us. He gives us grace to forgive us. He gives us grace that cleanses us and and, and, and makes life worthwhile to live. The fifth signpost would be that the gospel builds a spiritual family. I would say that the the, the storyline of the Bible is that the the world is made, you know, it's, it's intended to be made up um, of, of families, families upon families. OK, that's the family is the fabric of our society. And if you look at the world that we live in, especially in America, the family is under attack. The family has been fractured. And so the New Testament depicts the family as an oikos, as a household. It's, it's those that you not just that, you know, that that are blood um, uh, bloodline with you, but it's those who are blood bought by the blood of Christ. OK, the, 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 the blood of Christ makes us a family and it's a family that as we you know, as as we look at God as our father, our our the, the other people around us, Christian brothers and sisters are in our family as well. And the church is supposed to be both a loving care and a loving support to you as a family. The sixth signpost would be that the gospel is about participation with God. We aren't created. Uh, we aren't saved by the works that we do. There's nothing that we can do, whether having good behavior or being benevolent or being nice that merits God's favor. But. Um, we are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The seventh time post would be this. The gospel is about Jesus as the means and the end of our salvation. I just hate it when I turn on the TV and, you know, on, on Christian channels, I'll see someone up there just abusing um, relationship with Jesus, saying that if you trust Jesus, he'll make you successful or happy or that you'll, you'll gain wealth. You'll never be sick. Those I mean, there's nowhere in Scripture that we can claim those kind of things are, are is health and, and a good life, a benefit of believing in Jesus. Absolutely. But it's not guaranteed. God is interested in us feeling his purpose and giving us joy. And joy is a lot is, is a far distance from necessarily being happy. So what am I saying? I'm saying that. Um, anytime we focus on Jesus as the means to getting something, we have created a false gospel. And we have created the false God. So. All right. So seven. There are more. There's a lot more signposts. But if you're trying, if you're looking for a start place, where do I start to take the gospel of Jesus and him crucified to a person that has absolutely no idea of who God is? These are excellent. These are excellent ways. Things that you can hold up. Okay, things that you can talk about. You can fit the, the, the context of the gospel into these these genres here to help a person along the along the way to, to figure out who God and and Jesus is. And the rest we're going to learn from Paul. So open your Bibles back again. Uh, we're going to look at a few passages out of Acts chapter 17. I'm going to actually back up to verse 16 to give you a little bit of context. And I think the words will be on the screen for you to follow me, follow along with me. Um, verse 16. Now, Paul. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols so that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons 
and in a marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you were presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish that we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so right here in the words of Acts chapter 17, Paul is helping us out. Um, where we live in the context of right here where we live, whether you live in Alexandria or some other part of of D.C. Metro, there really are an endless number of of cultures um, that they're looking at the church. They may even attend church from 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 now and again. They hear the language that we're speaking, but they're unable to understand because we haven't fitted it to um, the way that they are able to communicate and understand. And of course, we're supposed to both live and speak the message of the Bible in a ways that people can hear and understand. And Paul, in, in the few words that we've read both before as we started the sermon and, and now, is trying to help us do that. And really, this passage is highlighting um, how Paul was able to contextualize the gospel, put the gospel in context with some people that he ran across um, as he was advancing God's kingdom throughout Rome. Uh, this is one of the accounts of Paul's second um, second missionary journeys. Paul wasn't wasn't trying to go to Athens. He actually wasn't. He had been in Berea and the Bereans were just nasty toward him. They hated. They didn't like him. They didn't like his message. And they chased him out of Berea to Thessalonica. And then they followed him, trying to kill him. And so Paul left Thessalonica and he walked to Athens. And if you look on a map, you know, Athens is a long way from from Thessalonica. But so he is. Um, if you know your history, Athens was an absolute marvelous city. It was both um, beautiful and artistic. Um, it was the home of the likes of Socrates and Aristotle, Alexander the Great. Um, Ale- uh, uh, Athens was known for its its the worship of gods. They had a god uh, represented by a statue or some temple on every corner. Um, Athens had temples all over the place to to gods that they thought they knew and gods that they did not know, trying to appease appease them all. And so, in verse sixteen, uh, we find that Paul walked into the city and he was immediately burdened. He was immediately burdened by the people that he saw. He was immediately burdened just by the the knowing that this city was such potential. I mean, they had um, philosophy and art and culture and language and education far beyond any of the other cities of that time. But the one thing that they lacked was they had no knowledge of God, of true of the true God. And they didn't know Jesus. Paul, uh, uh, especially uh, Luke, especially uh, especially mentions that Paul was burdened by all the idols that he saw. Um. As was Paul's custom, he would go into a city and he would first go to those who knew something about God. And so verse 17 tells us that he went into the he went to the synagogue and he would present from the Old Testament scriptures um, that what the prophets said about the promised one to come. And he would preach Jesus. And in some cases uh, they would mock him. In some cases they would follow him. And then, depending on what happened, he would go and greet the Gentiles. In this case, verse 17 says he went out into the, the Greek agora or the marketplace. And this would have been just a fantastic place. I liken it to going to the Eastern Market on a Saturday morning. If you've been to D.C. in the Eastern Market, just um, just all kinds of neat activity going on. There would have been um, there would have been some freaky stuff, but there would have been some interesting stuff to just to be amongst if you like being in crowds. Uh, There would have been um, vendors and farmers and healers and magicians, performers and philosophers. Okay, so much so that verse 18 tells us that two of the popular philosophies at the time was Stoicism and Epicureanism. And these are the ones that grabbed Paul and said, you know, uh, you know, basically what happens is. Paul decides he's going to preach the gospel in the, the Greek agora. He just stands up and just starts spouting off you know, about Jesus. And they hear him say these words. 
that Jesus was uh, raised from the dead and that catches that catches their ear. And so they uh, invite Paul to um, to come to a place called the Areopagus. Areopagus means the hill of Ares. Ares was a. Uh, one of the, the great gods of, of Athens in Latin, it means Mars Hill. OK, and so they invite Paul to Mars Hill. And that's where that's really the background to these first verses as we get up to verse 22. All right. So I got to go quicker. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so, so Paul meets them where they are. OK, and this really is what Paul is laying out a framework for us of introducing Jesus to a people that don't know him at all. OK, and so he's walking to the city. He's burdened by all the statues, the the, the worship of gods that they don't even know. And he says, I perceive that you are very religious. In fact, you got this little altar over here and it says to the unknown God. Well, I'm going to tell you, I know who that God is and he's not the one that you're worshiping. These Greeks, I mean, they were interesting people. They were pantheistic. That means that they believed that God was universal, that he was uh, he was actually in all the elements that they saw. Pieces of him were in the trees and in the buildings and all that stuff. They they served a pantheistic God. They believed that gods ruled over geographic regions. They believed that their gods needed homes like people do. That's why they built those temples, uh, temples dedicated to God so they could reside there. They believed that their gods were superhuman like people. When you see structures of Athena or um, Zeus, they were, you know, they, they just looked like super enlarged human beings. OK, you know, with a, a mighty man, with a mighty man pose. And so Paul explained that the God that you don't know about, he's creator of the world. OK, he wasn't made by hands. Um, he is he's separate from creation, in fact, and he has made all that you see. He's even made you. He's the one true God. Paul presented God as Lord and King of everything, ruling over heaven and over earth. He explained that God doesn't live in temples built by men. And I perceive that when Paul said these words, he was probably pointing to the temple, uh, the Parthenon. The Parthenon would have been uh, a very famous temple uh, built for uh, the goddess Athena, the goddess over Athens. And he was probably saying, you might think that the, that the real God, the one of your gods resides here in this temple. But I'm telling you, he doesn't reside in he doesn't need a home. Paul would have said that God is self-existent. He doesn't he's not dependent on you for anything. In fact, he is the source of your life. And your breath. Verse 26. And he made from one man every na- every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, the Epicurean belief was that life was little more than than random chance. And so Paul is refuting this fact with this verse here. Um, he's basically going back to Adam and he's saying all of life originates from one man. And that's one man that God created named Adam. The the Athenians, the Greeks believed that the ethnicities, the different races came from different origins, that this one was started by this God, that this one was started by this God. And that was why we had, you know, the, the, the sea of different ethnicities and cultures that we see. Paul claims that, you know, God is sovereign over histories. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over the ethnicities that you see in the world today. Verse 27. That they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from from all of us. Paul is saying we don't have to grope around in the dark, feeling our way to God, because if you're actually looking for him, you can find him. God is a God who doesn't make it hard to find himself. Paul says there's a God to find and he's not hard to find for those looking for him. More importantly, um, he says he's revealed himself through the story that I am about to tell that God is he's everywhere. You don't have to put him in a temple. You don't have to erect an altar uh, to a God that you don't know because he is he is 
trans, uh, transient. He is everywhere and nowhere that you can feel at the same time. Verse 28. Verse 28 is one of these verses that I quote all the time. And I'm going to tell you a little secret about this, this verse here in a second. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets have said. For in, we indeed are his offspring. Now, up to this point, Paul has just used the Old Testament. He's used the story of God from the Old Testament to to meet these people where they are in their religious nature. In verse 28, he actually, again, introduces to them ideas that they know. He is he is specifically quoting two Greek, um, two Greek writers. One is a philosopher named Epimenides. The other is uh, a poet named Aratus. And so when he says in him, uh, we live and move and have our being. Uh, this guy, um, this guy wrote a hymn to Zeus and he was saying in Zeus, we all live and move and have our being. And the poet Aratus was basically saying this, this, the same thing in regards to his comment for indeed we are his offspring. He was saying we all originate from the God Zeus. Zeus was the king of all the gods. And Paul was saying, you know what? I agree with you. Uh, in, in a sense that you understand the spiritual nature that life has to come from somewhere. You are attributing this life to, to God's like Zeus, whereas you should be attributing it to the one true God. And his name is Jesus. All right. Verse 29. We're going to go through verse 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In these verses, Paul changes his tone. Uh, formerly, he was just giving history. He was saying all that you think you know about God, I'm just going to give it to you. Uh, this is the God that this is the one true God, the God of the of the Bible. And then he gives them an overtly um, Christian perspective. He is he is changing their worldview. He challenged the Athenians that a true God is not one that you can just carve out of wood or stone, put him on a mantle, put words on it and says, we don't know who you are, but we want to worship you. Rather, God is I mean, he is he's. The God of the universe. Paul commands his listeners in these verses to repent, to repent of their false notions of who God is, to repent of their idolatry, to repent of their ignorance of, of spirituality. Because Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And he says these great words that God will hold all people accountable for what you believe in regards to this. All right, last few verses. Verse 32. Now, when he had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst and continuing on with verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Even uh, among him also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others who mocked him. You know, every time the gospel is proclaimed, people are going to react in a number of ways. Some people will mock. Some people will think it foolish. Corinthians says that uh, people think foolish the wisdom of God. Others will show contempt. And then there are some who will actually believe. And and we see that happening right here in these verses. And so in verse 34, with, with very little fanfare, um, Luke is writing, telling us that the end result of all that Paul did here was that a few people believed. You know, there's some interesting things that that happen here. There's no there's nowhere in this passage that says there's a church born in Athens from Paul's uh, from, from Paul's work here. There I mean, there's no mighty move of God. He didn't perform a lot of miracles. But in verse 34, it says these these great words. But some men joined Paul and they believed and, you know, believing, trusting in Jesus can only be can only come by the great grace of God. Romans 1 16 says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And this is really what happens here. And we might say that that's no fanfare. But, you know, when one comes to faith or a thousand come to faith, the angels are rejoicing. And, uh, you know, Paul has done what God has called him to do right here. Um, 
it's very interesting to me that for some reason, Luke mentions two people, two people amongst the sea of people at the Areopagus at Mars Hill that are listening to Paul. He says that a guy named Dionysius, um, the Areopagite, which means that he would have been amongst the court. He would have been affluent and educated. Um, he would have been in, you know, amongst the, the rulers there in Athens that he came to faith. And then he mentions a, a woman named Damaris. And because he doesn't give a title for Damaris, we know that she must have been a commoner, just a, a normal woman that happened to be in the crowd. And so we see the diverse nature of the gospel is able to, in this Greek culture, reach those who who didn't even know God when he started. And so. Um, two things that I think we can we can take from this. The first thing is. We only come to faith by God's grace. We only come to faith by God's grace. And I, um, I don't know why. As in other places in Scripture, there was no church created here. Actually, we do know from church history that later on, this guy, this Areopagite Dionysius, actually started a church. He became a pastor. He died as a martyr right there in, in Athens. And so uh, there was a presence of God in Athens from Paul's work there. It just didn't begin here and was not recorded in the words of Scripture. We, we know from church history that that happens. Uh, the other thing that I think is important for us to understand is you and I right now live in a place called Mars Hill. Yeah, we live in Kingstown. We live in Alexandria. We live in parts of D.C. Metro. But we live in no less uh, a pluralistic society where people are spiritual, where they worship things that they don't even know what they're worshiping. Quite like the day that Paul is living in. And so we shouldn't get our handkerchiefs out and dry our eyes and wring them, lamenting that we live in a bad society. No, that's not the, the Paul's purpose here, Luke's purpose, rather. But rather, we should see that there is an opportunity for us in the gospel, much like there was an opportunity for Paul to come in and be Jesus with skin on to people that have no idea of who God is. And so as I close, I want to give you a couple action points. This sermon today was really just to give you a framework, a framework for how can you take the gospel, the, 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 the message of Jesus, um, perfect life, him crucified for you in, your, in, in place of your on, on the cross for your sins and fit it into the life that you live in. And I don't there's nothing for you to repent of. Uh, I, I'm not asking you to repent, but I think that scripture needs to be actioned uh, when you hear it. And I want to give you some action points. And these may either make you excited or challenge you a little bit. We'll see how it goes. Um, the first one is this week, I want you to interact with the community that you exist in in a way that you haven't before. You know, we are people of habit. You wake up in the morning, you do whatever you do to get ready. You either work out of the home or you, you know, you take public transportation, you go to work, you do what you do. You go to the grocery store, you look at a magazine, you look at TV. I want you to today to get out of the rhythm. Why am I asking you to do that? Because we are people of habit. And sometimes we are so much people of habit that we we have blinders on. We go through our day not being as observant as we should about the culture that God has placed us in. So do something different this week. Go to a different grocery store, read a different magazine, tune your car radio to a different radio station and just be attuned to the, the community that you are in. Paul walked into Athens and he was immediately struck by the people and the things that he saw and God put on him a burden. And I want us to gain a burden for the people that we are around in in our own community. The second thing I would ask you to do is this week, make an effort to learn from people who you encounter in public settings. You know, again, as we go about the habit of our daily life, sometimes we can go to the grocery store or go to the bank and not even know, not even notice the people that are around us. And so uh, chances are you're going to go to a bank and get to talk to a bank teller. Chances are some of you are going to go to the grocery store and you'll have to interact with the cashier. I know some of y'all are going to go to a restaurant and you're going to have a waiter or a waitress that you can converse with. We have people that we get to talk to in different parts of our life. And I would ask you to uh, I'm not asking you to share the gospel with them. I'm not asking you to even mention the name God. I am asking you, though, to uh, draw up a conversation and see what you can find about their life. More than that, 
see what you can find about what they know about the community that we live in. Because I can tell you, they're going to, because they see uh, just a whole host of different kinds of people coming into their settings, they're going to be able to tell you something about the community that we live in that you might not even know. Thirdly, I would ask you, and this one may challenge you a little bit, speak to someone, have a conversation with someone that's not like you. All right, we hang around. That's what Christians do. We hang around people who are like us. Okay, we get into our Christian groups. Uh, we go into our Christian huddles, sing our Christian songs. You know, we have our Christian talk. I want you today to get out of that bubble and make an effort to find someone. It might even be your neighbor. It might be somebody on the metro. It might be somebody at work. It might be somebody just anywhere and, uh, and have a conversation with them. And the conversation that I want you to have with them is just to ask them um, how life is like for them. You know, what is life like for you where we live and see where that takes you. If uh, for those of you that are in communicate with us, uh, we'll have another set, a set of questions for you to consider as we uh, as we gather in our community groups. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And. Uh, Lord, I don't know what you'll do in our hearts with um, with this particular sermon, but I'm praying that you would. Uh, do one of two things that you would first open our eyes that like Paul, we would walk into uh, our Athens right here in Alexandria or the, the D.C. metro area and that we would be burdened. We would be burdened by the people that we see. We would be burdened by the idols that are erected around us. We would be burdened by the spiritual people that are worshiping unknown gods of of power and money and of materialism even the, the even worshiping the doing of good of politics and all those governmental things going on here in the DC metro area and then lord god would you fill our hearts with what burdens you for the people that are in our area more than that lord god we pray that you would help us take the next step and engage that like paul we would be able to put the gospel in context to what we see and that we would be able to craft the words that would connect the people where they are, whether far from God or worshiping something that they don't even know, and that you would help us make uh, just draw them one inch closer to who you are. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.